Activist theology is built on the power of story, and we believe story can change the world. We also know that being in community with one another on this journey will help to build a movement committed to collective liberation and a more loving world. We have a commitment to the ethics and politics of Encajunto, or togetherness, and we are together in this work with you. Hi, folks. This is Dr. Robin. Hi, y'all. This is Reverend Anna Galladay, and we are your hosts for the Activist Theology Podcast. It's time for us to get our hands dirty. We're ready. Are you? Hey there, Dr. Robin. Hey, Pastor. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Well, it's Monday, and I've been up since 8.07. My goodness. It is a, you are starting the week bright and early. Yeah, but I'm about to go back to bed once we of, finish this. Of, of course you are. <laughs> of course you are. You have a siesta calling your name. Yep. But I'm good. Good. I'm glad. I uh, I am recording for the very first time from my new home. You, you have internet. I have internet. I am I'm wired. I'm hooked up. I'm looking out my my office window at this amazing kind of urban neighborhood that I'm now a part of and they call it an urban sprawl. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's yes, they do. It's it I love this neighborhood though. It's so it's super um community oriented and I've met a bunch of my neighbors already and I'm really really excited. Ruthie loves going out for walks and talking to all of her new friends yeah. and getting to know them. So yeah. it's been, it's been fun to get to know this neighborhood and, and be a part of it. I can't wait to visit. I can't wait for you to visit either. So we got to visit this past week with one another. Yes. Which is a rare occasion. Yes. We got to be in real life with one another. We did in real life in Nashville. Um, our, our good friend, Leroy Barber, uh, came through with his team. They were doing a little bit of a voting tour throughout um, the Midwest and the and the South. And he and Pastor Jay, Jonathan Brooks, and Andrew Morgan uh, came and and uh, interviewed us for Leroy's podcast, the Sit Up Podcast, and that was fun. It to- was fun, and it's already dropped. You can listen to me and Anna talk about our work and yeah voting and all the things so good so good it was good to see you it was good to hug your neck mm-hmm. um, and the tacos were good good to have tacos and yeah. bourbon yeah friends like we are we are a bunch of predictable <laughs> predictable people you see robin and i together there's going to be bourbon involved yeah um, and some kind of amazing food. Yeah. It's it just, it, it is who we are. Yeah. Uh, so shall we talk about the shit show that is the president having been diagnosed with COVID-19? Oh my gosh. I mean, look, I don't want anybody to have this. And frankly, I want him to be accountable to this fall of the empire when it does happen. So, you know, and I don't want to wish death on anybody, but my God. Is this going to finally make him think that this is a serious thing that needs to be addressed at a federal level? Probably not. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to wish ill on him either. I've also had. I mean, even as a pastor, I've had a really hard time praying for him, um, mm. like sending good wishes into the universe for him. He has 
done so much harm to so many people. And, you know, my capacity to um, wish him well is, um, or, or, or my capacity to listen to others ask me to wish him well Mm -hmm. is the ultimate in gaslighting. I mean, you know, we, we don't, we don't pray for our oppressors to keep oppressing us. We pray for them to have a change of heart. So will I pray for him to get well? I, I mean, only if his heart softens and changes in the process like Mm -hmm. i don't have time for that shit i don't have time to just you know like you know be be the better human and and pray for him to keep harming the people that i love the most Mm. it's i mean that's that's not what that's not what you know working against the oppression of people is all about yeah i i um i've been thinking a lot about um just the cultural pain that exists right now and for all of those people who are experiencing cultural pain certainly black and brown folks what it's like to see him sick and in the hospital um how that is another fold of cultural pain you know um but you know we we're getting mixed messages from the white house about his condition condition and so we we don't know who to trust, what to trust, you know? I mean, it's un- it's similar to every other scenario that yes. has involved him over the last three and a half to four years. Um, yeah, I, I think I'm, I mean, the whole, everything about this is um, frustrating to me because he is, you know, he is taking advantage of a healthcare system that is at his disposal simply because of his position and his privilege. Right. And yet so many black and brown and indigenous folks died during this pandemic because healthcare was not at their disposal at right. the ready. And, you know, I mean, and it, and it does, isn't just about the pandemic. It's about healthcare in general. You know, we, We've got this man who is systematically undoing the ACA and doing right. everything he can to trash it yep. beyond recognition. Yep. And yet, you know, he's at Walter Reed, you know, trying to get himself out so he can do a drive-by right. in a secret service vehicle and then going back into a hospital where they're not telling us the truth about his care and he's getting his care on my taxpayer dime, on your taxpayer dime, right. on the taxpayer dime of all the people that are contributing to, um, you know, taxes in the U S it's just, it's really like, it just feels super icky to me mm-hmm. and frustrating and I'm annoyed by it. Yes. Likewise. So we are really grateful today to have, um, a fabulous guest with us. Um, who we had to reschedule because they went on vacation and we were like, we are waiting for you. We are going to wait for you to get back from vacation. We are going to rebook with you because I'm convinced that I'm related to this person. <laughs> well, you, you, you can talk about it with them when they're on here. I, I, uh, am convinced I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> well, but you don't share the same name. That's correct. I don't. Um, that's my only evidence. That's true. 
It's true. Um, so we are really grateful that today uh, Angela Henderson is joining us here. And Angela is a part of an organization called Southerners on the Ground, which is also known as SONG. Southerners on New Ground. Southerners on New Ground. Thank you for that correction. Um, otherwise known as SONG. And it's this beautiful queer liberation organization that um, is doing really good and necessary work in the South. And we're thankful that Angela is joining us today. Angela Henderson, welcome to the Activist Theology Podcast. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here. Thanks so much. I'm so glad that we rebooked and are having <laughs> what I'm calling family time with a distant relative. <laughs> All right. We got to check that ancestry. That's right. That's right. I do have like 5% from West Africa. Okay. Well, then it, it, may, it may be the case. <laughs> <laughs> but but most of my most of my family comes from Mexico, Nueva Leon. Do you have any connection there? Mm, what what was the last name on? Nueva Leon. Nueva Leon. No, I haven't. Not that I know of. I need to do more of that work. Okay. Well. So so we're gonna have to wait a little bit longer to find out if we're distantly related. We we will. <laughs> Angela, why don't you tell us a little bit about the work that you do with song, um, how you arrived at that work. Um, if you were to share the story of your becoming into this work of liberation, what would you tell our listeners got you to where you are now? Short, <laughs> short and sweet question. Um, I think that, uh, well, first I'll just say, like I said, my name's Angela Henderson, uh, and I'm calling in from Nashville, Tennessee, and, you know, I'm someone who was born and raised in the South and pre predominantly grew up in Nashville and in the suburbs of Nashville as well. And so how did I come into this work? <laughs> it, long story short, it was, it was a long process, and it's, it's still going. Um, but, you know, I see myself as a major nerd, um, as a lifelong student, um, as someone who's coming into uh, socialism and figuring out what that means for the work, um, and also just someone who's really passionate about organizing political education, and that's a lot of the, the work that I do as well for a uh, song, just as a, a member. Um, I'm, I work as the Tennessee statewide organizer, but I do a lot of work with organizing political education uh, for the region as well, which is just, I'm very grateful. Um, and I think that my story for coming into um, movement is really, I, I kind of had to spend a lot of time, you know, <laughs> observing and listening, studying, questioning, as we all have to do. Um, and so as, you know, as someone growing up in the suburbs and, you know, attending private schools, I, I was someone who um, experienced a lot of class privilege, um, particularly um, myself. I grew up with three other siblings who are all older, who had slightly, you know, different experiences a little bit in that respect. Um, 
but I ended up going to school at Yale. And so I was in this intensely polarized class environment, a predominantly white institution, a lot of day-to-day racism. Um, and then also colleges tend to be these bastions of like <laughs> sexual violence, homophobia, transphobia. So I was pretty much, um, you know, navigating all of this as a black queer woman with class privilege um, and just kind of like someone who never really spoke a lot at all, <laughs> ever in class, really, and had to had to go through some transformation to be able to to even kind of speak in a lot of ways. Um, but I think that one transformative experience um, for myself was in the fall of, of 2015. I think I was a sophomore, junior. I don't have the best memory. But um, there were these massive student protests, and we were super deep in those streets. And it was just a really um, powerful experience. It, it emerged from this, uh, really <laughs> messed up email that was sent out from our uh, so-called you know, associate master, which is another messed up dynamic we had at school. We had to call certain people master. Mm. Um, oh but, my god, <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot. It's a whole lot. <laughs> Sounds but, like a lot. Yeah, um, but basically, I mean, I don't know. And every time Halloween came around, I was always like, okay, who's going to be wearing this racist costume? So I think, I don't know who sent out some kind of memo that was like, please be you know, sensitive and don't basically don't be racist when you wear, pick your Halloween costume. And so this uh, administrator just basically responded with like, if you don't like it, you know, simply look away. <laughs> and so people got really upset. And then other incidents happened that escalated um, and racists were like coming out of the woodworks and the classrooms and dining halls. And there's just a lot of tensions. Um, so this experience was, was really impactful because it was a time where I got to see and witness um, black and brown students started to organize. Um, and I was really tangential, but I was in the loop. <laughs> and, um, you know, I got to see my classmates, friends, um, you know, really take leadership and, and care for one another. And, you know, it was a national news story at the time and students were getting death threats. And I was, I was, take, I was doing black studies. I majored in black studies and the African-American studies department building, um, you know, had to start locking its doors because it was getting bomb threats. And it was just a really serious situation. Um, but also at that time, I just learned about the history of New Haven and the Black Panther Party there. And I was just really blown away. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I got to see like what it looks like to come together to craft, you know, demands that are both symbolic and material to like navigate class contradictions, um, to navigate race and gender um, and what it looked like to target, you know, the president and realize where power lies and how like <laughs> the Yale Corporation, who had a lot of power to make these kinds of changes, um, to change the material structure um, of of Yale as an institution um, was really secret behind closed doors, like all. Yeah. And um, I, I started to connect certain kinds of dots um, that intrigued me. And so that's that's just one instance that I will say I got to like visibly see what it looks like to build um, movement and solidarity protest. I love that. 
and to do it at a place like Yale, I mean, which is such, it's just riddled with complexities as a, as a person who has faculty colleagues at Yale and um, has known students from Yale. Um, yeah, super fucked up. Yeah, <laughs> best way to put it. That we say that word on this podcast, by the way. So okay, I was there, wondering. There, yeah, there's there's no filter. You can say whatever the hell you want to say. We are listed as explicit on all the channels. So, um, bring explicit. bring yes, girl, explicit. Right. Um, so bring bring your most radical politics and language. We are here for it. <laughs> okay, gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> And so, so if I hear what you're saying, you, you began to kind of um, understand the intersectionality um, of politics and race and movement work while you were in Connecticut. And then you found your way back home, back to Nashville. And at what point did you, did you say to yourself, like uh, this, this work is as important here in the place that I call home as it is in the place where I, you know, w- was embedded in academia. Did did Nashville seek you out in a way in this work, or did you seek out the work in Nashville once you found yourself back in the South? Mm-hmm. Well, I I gotta say that when I when I left the South, I. <laughs> left with a lot of notions that I think become deconstructed um, as you kind of experience, <laughs> as you broaden your experiences and, and just thinking like, oh, I live in this backwards red state and, you know, just wanting to escape that and also, you know, develop who I was as a queer person and, and you know, I'm like, I can play rugby here. Like all of these things were, were happening. And so I... I didn't plan to necessarily come back. <laughs> and so I would often go to, some of my family lives in, and is from Richmond, California. And so I would return there and kind of like explore different parts of myself. And those were experienced a lot of transformation as well. But the reason I came back was because um, my mother was, was getting um, intense brain surgery and yeah. I knew that I had to come back and make sure that she was okay. And I kind of like, um, that was at the forefront of my mind, honestly. Um, But I also came back and I was so ready to plug into local organizing community at the same time. And from, and from that, I, um, I just learned (laughs) that from seeing people on the ground, like people have been doing this work here um, for years and years and years. And I, I kind of like (laughs) had to check myself, um, on that own kind of prejudice I was having about the South and, um, invisibilizing Southern organizing work Mm. and, and just all of that. Yeah. Which, you know, I, I have, I'm, I'm a native of Texas and, when I left Texas, I did all that deconstruction in Chicago and, you know, had very similar mm-hmm. sentiments about their politics are backwards. There's no work being done there. And then, of course, after the 2016 election, I found myself moving back home to the South, made Nashville my home. And, you know, 
had had known about Song for many years and knew some of the folks who organized with Song and um you know quickly signed up for the email list so I can know what's happening and whatnot. And you know, you come to find out the work is is real here and there are people on the ground working for change every day. Um I love every May when I get a text message from Song about donating for the Black Mama's bailout. I always participate in that because I'm like, I would want someone to do that for me if I was in jail um, to help bail me out. And, you know, what a great program that that y'all have going on there. And I just love that how you're coming back to your roots um, did you ever feel like you had forgotten your roots when you got up to Yale and doing all that deconstruction? <laughs> um, I don't know that I would characterize it like that, but I think that maybe there was maybe some unintentional desire to like erase because <laughs> yeah. I was like, I don't want to acknowledge that the experiences that I've had, right. um, in a lot of different ways. And so, yeah, maybe you are <laughs> right there, yeah. right on right there. And that coming back home, coming back to, you know, roots and to my family and just confronting, you know, what was here um, was definitely a part of that process of, mm-hmm. of just, yeah, acknowledgement yeah. Um, and going deeper. Yeah. I, that's That's what I've been doing since I've been back is just, digging into myself and into the roots and into the land and into the people and figuring out how do we build this thing that we want to see? What does that look like? (laughs) Right. Well, and there's, there are so many complexities with organizing in the South. I know you mentioned it briefly, Angela, you know, we, all of us, I'm in Chattanooga just down the road. And so, you know, it's, I mean, it's a, this, this organizing, um, hierarchy, if you will, that, that, that the South has perpetuated really, really decenters the voice or has historically decentered the voices of black and brown people, uh, for one reason or another, whether it's validity issues or just simply a lack of understanding that organization needs to happen and and be spearheaded by those that are central to the the uh, the the need for liberation. Uh, but I think that one of the things, and I, and you know, I'm a I'm a white woman, a cis white woman in Chattanooga doing my best every day to listen and and defer to the organizers here on the ground who are BIPOC and and really, you know, you know, def- just take, I'm taking my own need to to centralize my opinion out of the work. Are you finding that that is improving in Nashville or are you finding that there are instances where um, us white folks are are doing a better job at getting out of the way? Or do you think it's still um, a, a, a pervasive problem that that you're seeing in organizing with, a, a you know, a, a 
centralization of power around whiteness. Basically, what Anna is asking is, are white people getting in line <laughs> behind black and brown people? Because right, I know, I know. The white, yeah, the white people in my life they still they still saying shit, and I'm like, now why'd you have to go and say that? <laughs> That's like a weekly, that's a weekly conversation for Robin and I, Robin saying, now why'd you got to go say that, Anna? <laughs> well, I think that it's, it's a process. <laughs> I will yeah. say. And I think that, you know, coming into song and understanding what it's like to be committed to uh, multiracial organizing and also recognizing the need for um, autonomous spaces. Like in song, we have, um, we have a very strong convening culture in song, and relational organizing is is core to the work. Uh, and so we can't unfortunately do that right now uh, right. due to COVID. But in the past, we've had like black and brown autonomous convenings. We've had called Bayard Rustin, um, and um, we've also had a leadership development cohort, which is how I came into song and when I first pretty much discovered it. Um, and was blown away that it existed. Uh, but it's a Black leadership development cohort called The Lord's Work uh, that brought together, when I first came in, 50 queer and trans people from all throughout the South, Black folks. And so I kind of came in in mostly predominantly Black spaces within song that were created. And that's how I kind of got some you know, training mm -hmm. and developed many relationships. And so there was this core basis. And so when I come into Nashville and like plugging into the chapter work to the Nashville chapter, um, I felt there were both um, relationships that I built with white people that showed me what it's like to, to be a comrade in that sense and to be, you know, <laughs> white as well. Um, and I was like, okay, it's possible. <laughs> it is possible. But I think that what helps is to be, um, when you are accountable, when you're organized and accountable to organization, that is, is for me what, what must be done, I think, as white folks, um, to have some sort of like group that they're <laughs> accountable to and not kind of roguely acting as, um, change agents on behalf of black and brown communities and black and brown <laughs> liberation. Um, and then I think usually with this multiracial organizing has really taught me that people make a lot of assumptions about who people are, depending on, <laughs> you know, like we got the black space over here, the white race trader space. Um, Song has a race trader series going on right now that's uh, intended for white folks to like, strengthen um, their politics and organizing. And we have other kinds of spaces, non-Black PLC, and it can get kind of a lot, but we're, we're working with it. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that assumptions are really made and that really uh, we all have so many different experiences and we are all, you know, not the same, no matter how, you, how we are grouped. Um, and so... That can be really complex to navigate. Um, and I think that we all have a stake when it comes to liberation and mm -hmm. particularly in the South, uh, we definitely certainly all have a stake in this. Um, so <laughs> it's a process to answer. Yeah. yeah. No, that's no I hear that. I hear that. I mean, I've been thinking a lot as a mixed race Latinx who is white passing. I've been thinking a lot about 
there is a performance of whiteness. There is a culture of whiteness. There's a toxicity of whiteness. There's white supremacy. There are all these different layers to, to whiteness. And if we can learn to compost the negative pieces, we might be able to get a more beautiful piece of whiteness, you know, but that, that takes a lot of um, white folks to own their own shit and um, be attentive to the ways that they step out of line and, and fuck shit up. And we're good at it. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't say that with any, with any ounce of pride, but we are, um, it's one of the things we're best at is, um, you know, figuring out how to step on toes and um, fuck it up for people that, that don't look like us. It's, we've been doing it for generations and we seem to can't, we, we can't ever seem to get out of our own way. Um, so you, you mentioned a little earlier about the, the work you do within song, um, around, um, politics and, you know, kind of helping the, uh, well, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but identify for us a little bit more about the work that you're doing on the ground in Nashville with song. I'd love to hear kind mm -hmm. of what that process looks like, or at least um, to, to get an understanding of kind of how you engage in the work on a, on a real-time basis. Right. Right. So like I said, song is a queer trans liberation organization that is, it, we haven't always been abolitionists, um, but we are, you know, abolitionists as well. And we see that as integral to to it all. So, for the past few years or so, um, we've been, you know, um, kind of having these in money bail and pre child detention campaigns, and that's been what a lot of the chapter work has looked like. Especially, um, not all of our membership is organized in in the form of the chapter. We have like rural pockets of membership and and all the rest. Um, but the chapter work has looked like a lot of um, of a lot of bail work, and so we've, like Dr. Robin was saying, had the uh, Black Mamas bailout as a as a tactic of that to bring awareness one to to the ways in which money bail and pretrial detention impacts um, impacts our communities on the ground to build relationships with caregivers and mothers and just folks who are um, pretty much locked up, locked up, locked away because they uh, can't afford to pay bail and also broadening it from this kind of like narrative of, you know, um, I think a lot of times we, we play into this idea of innocence and presumption of innocence and like reality is like <laughs> ain't nothing innocent about the system that any of our people are going through and um, being able to put the material experience into this, this proper context of, um, you know, we live in an empire, <laughs> we live in an intensely carceral and violent state, and that our people are doing the best they can to survive. And so how are we, um, yeah, how are we holding our people and building power in our communities? So, so in Nashville, that work has looked like doing bailouts ahead of, of Mama's Day, um, and continuing that, following through with that, with, um, you know, case management, case services, and building community. Um, one of my favorite things is uh, the homecoming celebrations 
that we do across the South after bailouts, uh, where mm-hmm. we kind of just celebrate and invite yeah. um, invite people to come uh, celebrate with us that <laughs> what has happened. Um, so that's that. And in the recent times, we did not do a bailout this year um, because of COVID and feeling un. We wanted to pivot our campaign work towards um, like a free them all kind of demand that a lot of folks were, were yeah. kind of saying free them yeah. all. And we wanted to be, how do we be more sharp and um, bold in our demands uh, so that more people can be freed in this time where people are um, dying in our, in our jails and prisons and of COVID-19 and of complications and of lack of medical care. Um, so just being really aware of that in this time um, and trying to, as, as there's regional and national uh, conversations and demands around defunding the police, that we're always connecting to more broadly to the full fullness that is the web of the prison industrial complex um, and, and, waging invest divest uh, budget fights um, beyond the police itself as well, which I think is a very righteous demand, but also we need to be shutting down um, jails and, and close and closing cages and things like that. Yes. Um, so that's, that's a little bit of the work that we're doing. Um, we got some really big news this year that, um, um, Core Civic will no longer be operating in Nashville and Chattanooga. <laughs> yes, exactly. We had a big, we had a big old celebration party about that one. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And so that's um, we're part of this coalition called Rotten to the Core um, that has been ch- fighting against uh, Core Civic and private prisons um, in Nashville and, and throughout Tennessee. Um, and so we're trying to wonder, like, with this. Uh, when, like, how do we follow through and and broaden the narrative, too, around we don't want just a huge money grab for our sheriff, Darren Hall, <laughs> and and for to just increase the budgets when, in reality, the cages that um, right. Core right. Civic was operating uh, is actually fairly empty right now. Um, the capacity is not operating at a large capacity, so there's a, a possibility for what could it look like to actually shut that down. Um, and like be rapidly decarcerating and, and instead of paying money for like full jail cells or empty <laughs> jail cells that are only going to be motivated to be filled, um, what if we just shut that down and repurposed it into something else that was actually beneficial for people that are impacted by um, incarceration in the prison industrial complex, particularly uh, black and brown trans folks and queer folks um, experiencing, um, you know, houselessness and food scarcity and all of these things right now, especially during COVID, when a lot of our people are really struggling to stay, um, to pay their rent and who are facing evictions and who are um, trying to get food, uh, who are having to send their kids um, to to their mom because they can't, you know, afford to um, keep them, all of those things, what would it look like to invest that money back into our communities who are especially struggling in this time? 
Right. I mean, lest we think that, you know, the the removal of core civic is going to, I mean, white people are going to find a way to shift the power no matter what. I mean, just because core civic doesn't have the power doesn't mean that somebody else isn't, you know, some other sheriff isn't mm-hmm. going to come in and try to assume that power in, in another way that's just as detrimental. So I'm, yeah, I'm with you on, you know, what, what does it look like to reimagine that in, in today's context? Um, do you see the, do you see our current or, or the, the future of our political system? I mean, obviously we're coming up on an election. Do you see there being the possibility for some change in uh, the, the prison industrial complex based on what could happen in, in the election in November? Hmm. <laughs> I don't see that. Um, I, I guess if you're talking about um, the national kind of scale, that either way, it's it's looking disastrous for our people. It's, right. It's the continuation. Um, but I think that there are opportunities down the line, too, um, that could be key strat- strategic pressure points. Um, uh, particularly in 2022 in Tennessee, there the entire judicial conference is up for re-election, and so you know all the judges, DAs, like anyone <laughs> in in the judicial conference um, has an open seat, and so that's kind of like a huge, huge um, uh, pressure, opportunity, uh, opportunity, right? Right, right. I would say to kind of make some changes and demands that can uh, impact our people who are, you know, serving these horribly long sentences who are, you know, and the governor's up for re-election as well. Um, and just like who, who deserve and are worthy of, of clemency <laughs> who should be getting out um, and who also should not be put in for such ridiculously long periods of time due to all of these sentencing laws and whatnot. So I think that that that's kind of where I see a, a large opportunity for our people in, in Tennessee, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think that, um, at least in this moment, that the, carcer, the carcerality of this state is going to be minimized by um, either um, major political parties, be that Democratic Party or Republican Party. Um, I, I love this, that there's an opportunity because as I know, as I've been at some of the actions in Nashville, the governor, um, is really do is, is really criminalizing Mm -hmm. activism. And when you think about 2022 being such a big year for Tennessee, it's an opportunity for us to vote our liberation and vote our potential. And so what are, you know, this podcast is really the stories that help us get our hands dirty. And so if we're looking to 2022 to, as I say, vote our liberation, get our liberation in office, what are some of the ways that we can get our hands dirty to prepare for 2022? And and how can our listeners maybe um, get involved with song and, and get their hands dirty with song? Well, I would first say, you know, to 
get organized is always a good, <laughs> a good yeah. thing. And, and joining an organization in alignment with your purpose and vision for liberation and also making sure that you are studying with the folks in your squad because, you know, the way I see it, the electoral um, electoral politics to me is more, more so a spectacle than anything else because mm-hmm. it just tends to lack any substance whatsoever. Right, right. <laughs> but I think that um, getting organized with the squad and being able to study so that you can, like, develop theory and put put the particular tactics and material conditions that we're operating over in the proper political context, um, then I think that, that that serves well to, like, do the work of building broad-based political power. And that's what's really needed. Um, and the reason why we, we do statewide organizing is because we're operating under this, um, this like, how the state overall organizes power mm-hmm. and the history of, like, you know, states' rights and how much power is afforded into the confines of, like, this particular border. Um, and so I think that overall we need to be building people power in our local community so that we can connect and, you know, any struggle that we fight for in, in Nashville and Chattanooga and Knoxville and Memphis, it can be undone, uh, right. you know, at any point through the, the, the mechanism of the statewide um, infrastructures and, and legislature. And so that's, that's why we, we prioritize statewide um, power building. In Southerners on New Ground, we have organizers, on statewide organizers in Tennessee, Georgia, Virginia, um, and, you know, hope to have more, too. And so in Tennessee, we have a, a statewide coalition called Tennessee Organizing for Power Statewide, <laughs> TOPS, yeah. um, that is really centered around, you know, envisioning new possibilities for public safety that's um, kind of rooted in fully resourced communities and all of those things. And so we've been working together over this past um, number of months. Um, And a lot of our organizations that are involved are, um, you know, fighting, doing prison work and, and, and fighting money bail, pre-child attention and waging these invest, divest budgets, budget battles um, and all of that. And so I think that what's most important is that whether you're, you know, listening in from, um, you know, wherever you're at, like building that local power and then making those connections across the state, across, really across the world is what's needed, but across the state when it comes to things like these particular kind of electoral uh, fights um, so that we can develop our own platform as a people um, and develop our own um, guidelines by which we will hold our, hold people accountable who um, are in the office and also to like, as things organically emerge, you know, running people um, that are deeply rooted in community into office too, so that they can um, (laughs) check things up as much as possible. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's the work, right? That's the work to um, build your power base and organize and, make the kind of change that that we want to see right and that takes people and power and time and resources and um all sorts of things Mm -hmm. yeah 
Well, I'm so glad that we had a chance to to talk with you and and be in conversation. I'm wondering if you would talk a little bit more about the race trader series that you have going on. I get those um, I get those emails, and I'm always very curious about that particular one. Yes, the race trader series. So, the race trader series is a basically. I don't know how much longer it's going. It started in this this summer um, after the you know uprisings are happening and re- happening and recognizing a need to like call together uh, the queer white <laughs> Southern kin. Um, like a lot of the leadership, the white leadership is like we need to get our people. So. Mm-hmm. And and we also there's a large influx too, and and I know a lot of organizations are experiencing this too, of people who are eager to join organizations and a lot of them are white (laughs) not all white people but um so it's just a space to kind of come together to figure out um you know what it is the mandate i guess (laughs) of white folks to do with the guidance of you know other folks in in song uh the organization and so just kind of recognizing the you know the lineage that white folks have come from, and particularly right. in the South, um, and you know, coming together to build a connection and accountability, um, to build a political assessment, and to also like test out different strategies um, to uh, figure out how white folks can make a particular kind of intervention um, to mobilize our folks in the South uh, towards you know, movement and, and change yeah. and you know, all of those things. So it's, that's the series. It's on Sundays. Uh, it was every other Sundays at five central. So um, I think we have a couple more episodes left. Cool. Involved. Maybe our listeners can catch that. Yeah. I, I encourage you all to take a look at the song website. Um, it's southerners on newground.org. Uh, there's a wealth of information there, a ton of um, good content, a lot of ways to get connected. And I mean, I appreciate as someone who, you know, has gone through a real intentional process over the last several years of, you know, trying to deconstruct my own whiteness and understand um, how it is that I'm responsible for the perpetuation of supremacy culture in the world. I appreciate organizations like Song that are willing to step into the work and get their hands dirty with white folks like me, um, because it's um, it is not easy work to do. And if there's one thing that I tell a lot of the white folks I'm in community with, um, you know, it is not incumbent on BIPOC people to help you figure this out, but. If you have the capacity to network with people that look like you and people that don't look like you, you will be better for it um, because your understanding of divesting of your own whiteness um, will go farther and it will be more rich and, and full if you are able to do it in community. Well, 
we I think we did we we got another episode in the bag. I'm so grateful, <laughs> Angela. This was this uh, this conversation was rich. It was exactly what I needed this week. Um, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about how they can be in touch with you if they want to tweet you or connect with you on Instagram or even connect with song um, in more ways than than I've shared with just the website. What's the best way for them to to be in touch with you? Yeah, I mean, I would definitely encourage folks to, yes, go on the website, southernersonnewground.org. You can sign up to become a member, and then we'll we'll get, we'll get you involved that way. Um, and I will plug, Southerners Underground has an Insta and Twitter. I'm not quite on that level yet. Sorry, y'all. <laughs> um, but it's at Ignite Kindred. Oh, cool. So both the Insta and Twitter, and also Facebook. Um what a, great, so, what a great, what a great Yeah, <laughs> we, love, yeah. we love talking about it, Kendrick. Um, and then we also have two chapters in Nashville and in Knoxville. I don't know if folks are just listening from Tennessee, or, <laughs> but we. This oh is no, we've got we've got listeners all over. So so oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> well, individual chapters have their own social media as well, and usually it's just song, and then whatever the city is. Cool. Um, so definitely get plugged in that way. Very cool. Dr. Robin, we have found ourselves at the end of another amazing episode. Um, I want to remind our listeners um, that Southerners on a New Ground is a place you really should check out. Um, go take some time, spend some time, see if there's a chapter near you, become a member. Um, we also encourage you to keep up with what activist theology is doing in the world. We have we are launching a couple of really cool things over the next few weeks leading up to the election. And we invite you to um, stay in touch with us via our social media accounts to learn all of the things that you want to uh, you want to be a part of. We're going to actually gather on election night, which is something that you all might want to take advantage of. Uh, so follow us at Activist Theology. Don't forget that activist and theology share a T. We encourage you to share this podcast. Uh, give us give us some feedback on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to it. Um, we'd love to to get your uh, get your feedback and and hear what you think about it. And Dr. Robin, until next week, we're going to continue trying to get our hands dirty and yep. figuring out what this work looks like in the world. Trying to get free every day. All right. Again, thank you, Angela. Thanks, listeners. We will chat with you soon. And until then, let's do it. Are you looking to connect the dots between what you think and how you live? Are you looking for a more robust way to be in solidarity with the movement? Are you looking to get your hands dirty with the work of social justice? Join Dr. Robin and Reverend Anna Galladay each week as they share, reflect, and analyze on pressing social concerns. Want to help support this podcast? Go to activisttheology.kindful.com and click on podcast. And remember, activist and theology share a T. The music you hear in this episode is Hands Dirty by our friends Delta Ray. Our sound editor and engineer is Dan Medley from 10 South Sounds.